from the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hey, Wendy, guess what? What? It's our 50th episode. Hey, that's great. Congratulations. Well, congratulations to you. Thank you. And congratulations to all our listeners. Yeah. We, know, we have some faithful listeners out there who have listened to every one. You're awesome. Thank you, everybody who've listened to all 50 of our episodes. Yeah, so that kind of tells us, you know, it's a year because it's a weekly podcast. Yeah, we're getting getting close to a year. Yeah, this has been an important year for us, an important experience for us to do this together. It has been. It's been really bonding for Mm -hmm. us, hasn't it? Absolutely. And you're kind of famous now. Did you know that? (laughs) (laughs) Everywhere I travel now, people say, tell Wendy I'm a big fan of the podcast. Oh, my goodness. That's so funny. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Lord. Use it for good. Amen. He is. He is. Uh, You know, I have a little question for you. Um, I was thinking about how uh, sometimes you... When you need to just get a little physical activity, how you'll go in our basement and pound out on your drum set, mm-hmm. you know, get some good rhythms out. And I just wondered if you'd share with us about kind of how you got started as a drummer. How did oh. that happen? Well, it is the Ask Christopher West Show. Yes, I guess I'm you're entitled. You. <laughs> yeah, well, drumming, you're right, has been a humongous part of my life. And, and not just externally, it's been great for my interior life. Mm. I don't even know if I can explain that. Okay. But we we have stuff inside. We have music in our bones. We have rhythm in our bones. We have rhythm in our very chest in the beating of our heart. It's, it's kind of visceral. That's cool. Yeah. It's the first thing we hear. It's the first thing we hear is a drum beat. Mm. It's the beating of our mother's heart. It's it's like in us. Mm. And when I was 14 years old, 1983, my my friends were starting a band, and they wanted me to play the bass, and stringed instruments scared me, uh-huh. like having to work a fretboard. I've since overcome that fear, too, because uh-huh. I play the guitar. But uh, at that time, the thought of playing the bass was threatening to me, and I said, um, no, I want to play the drums. And they said, well, we already have a drummer. And I said, well, kick him out. <laughs> I want to be the drummer. I'm not proud of this. But uh, James Haynes, if you're out there listening, I'm so sorry that my insistence on being the drummer in the reviews, that was the name of our band, the reviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I insisted on being the drummer, and James Haynes got the nicks, and I took over. Sorry, James Haynes. Um, but, but even it, even there, you had to be, like, when you were listening to music, like, you had to be really aware of drums and what they, how they were part of, an important part of songs in order to say you could be a yeah, drummer. Yeah, yeah, right? I had the sense that I, I, had, I could do that. I okay. didn't have the sense that I could play the guitar okay. or play the bass, but I did have a sense that I could learn the drums. I don't know where that sense came from, and I had never played the drums, but I just knew if I set my mind to it, I can wow, do it. that's great. So yeah, I, I, I saw a lot of drummers because there was a, a band in the neighborhood that some older teenagers were part of and we would go to see their shows and I would set my sights right on the drummer and I'd watch them and I'd say, I could do that. And I did, I, I got my drum set. I saved up a bunch of money shoveling driveways and doing yard work and I bought my first drum set for 135 bucks. 
I didn't know how to use it, but I was determined to learn. Mm. And I just listened to music. I watched drummers, and I sat at that drum set, and I pounded it out until I could do it. And, yeah, and it's been part of my life ever since. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, God, for the drums. Thank you, God, for music. Yeah. It's been quite a gift in my life. It sure has. It's been a gift to me, too. I always enjoy your drumming. Yeah, remember our, our the day I proposed to you? Yeah. I had a show that night with one of the bands I was in at the time, and you sat up on stage right behind me. Got to watch you. As the drummer. I was I was thrilled that my fiancé was on stage sitting behind me watching me drum. I just, yeah, it was, was it, thrilling. Yeah, sharing your heart. It was great. I also love when you dance to my drum beats, lover. Well, thank you. It delights me. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm glad that brings you a lot of joy. It's sort of a, a therapy. It's a great thing. It is. And it blesses other people when you perform in public. So, If any other stuff. drummer out there knows what I'm talking about, uh, let me know because I'd be, I'd be curious. Yeah, that's great. So can I start with a question from David? David, indeed. Okay, so David's begins, I would like to thank both of you for your work on this podcast, as well as your marital witness and love for one another that shines through each week. You're so, welcome, David. David. He says, in recent weeks, I've heard discussions from other podcasts about the, quote, marital debt, which is taken from St. Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Will you explain from the TOB standpoint what St. Paul's saying or not saying about sex being a debt owed to one another within marriage. Yes, David, happily, I will address this question. I think John Paul II shines a very important light on this. John Paul II addresses this very issue. He reflects on St. Paul's words about the marital debt, and he says, we mustn't understand this apart from the reality of the marital covenant. And, of course, first principle of biblical exegesis, that means interpreting Scripture properly, is read it in context. So, what do we owe? If we're going to use the word debt, what do we owe one another? Mm. As husband and wife, we owe one another love. That's the debt that we are to pay one another, to love one another. This is the love of the covenant, John Paul II says. And the love of the covenant is the love that Christ has for his church. So again, reading scripture in context, the marital debt, what do we owe one another? We owe one another love. It's the love of the covenant. And this is where St. Paul elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands, all you husbands out there, all you future husbands out there, and I'm one of them. I'm a husband right here. And it scares me even to say it because I know my inadequacies, Wendy. I know where I've failed you. I know where I've hurt you in my brokenness. But this is the, this is the bar, right? If we're going to set the bar, this is the bar. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You cannot give what you do not have, which means if I'm to love you, if I'm to pay the marital debt to you, and what I owe you, Wendy, is love, then I better 
be in the posture before Christ of letting his love into my heart, into my life, into my mind, into my body, so that in giving my body up for you, that's what I'm truly doing. I'm loving you to the extent that it is humanly possible. <laughs> I'm loving you as Christ loves the church. That's, that's the debt. That's what I owe you. Will I ever pay that debt perfectly? I will not. So I always say, number one ingredient of a successful marriage is mercy. Mm -hmm. But we can, we can grow in that love. And that's the journey of married life. It's what it's meant to be, is growing in that love. So again, David, the marital debt can never be understood as some perfunctory, you owe me sex tonight and you better give it to me because the Bible says so. God have Ouch. mercy on us. Yes, say that more loudly, Wendy. Ouch. Yes, that, that is the response of the female heart to that approach to the marital debt. What we owe is love, and that love must be the love of Christ for his church. Will we live it perfectly? No. Mercy, mercy, mercy on all of us. But we must continually open our hearts, make the journey of bringing that love into our hearts, purifying our hearts so that we can love ever more perfectly. And I'll hold out this one final thought, which is a line from John Paul II in his book, Love and Responsibility. We must not be discouraged when the path of love follows torturous ways because Christ has the ability to make those ways straight. Mm. I lied. There's one more thing I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> this is also from Love and Responsibility. I love this line. He says, love never is. It is always only just becoming. Mm. In other words, we never arrive saying, now I know how to love. Love never is in that sense. We never arrive at it. It is always only just becoming which means there's always new discoveries, which is really exciting. Isn't that exciting? Wendy, Absolutely. you and I are on an adventure together of ever new discoveries. That's yes, awesome. It is. It is. Let's keep going. Okay. And everybody out there, keep going. Whatever your state in life, we're all called to love. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Amen to that. May I share another question? Sure. This is from a listener named Mary. She says, I've had a hysterectomy. It does not seem correct to say that I cannot, that if I cannot conceive, I cannot get married in the church. You've said a sterile man cannot get married. Does this apply to me now? Mary, bless you, bless you. There's a little confusion going on here, Mary. It is incorrect to say that I have taught or that the church teaches that sterility is an impediment to marriage. It is not sterility that is the impediment to marriage. It is impotence that is the impediment to marriage. Definitive impotence. So let's distinguish between sterility and impotence. Sterility means you can engage in sexual intercourse, but it doesn't bear fruit in a child. Mm-hmm. Impotence, definitive and perpetual impotence, which is the impediment to marriage, means you are not able to engage in sexual intercourse for some reason. 
maybe just for the sake of a definitive example, it's maybe a man was in a horrible accident and he lost his genitals. So that man would be definitively and perpetually impotent. I can't go into all the details here. So I'm going to refer you again to my book, Good News About Sex and Marriage, where I go into great detail about why this is an impediment to marriage. But here's the short answer. Marital love is a specific kind of love. There are many, many kinds of love. You have the love between friends. You have the love between a father and a a daughter. You have the love between an uncle and a nephew. You have the love between a grandmother and her grandchildren. Mm -hmm. These are all beautiful human loves. You have the, did I already say, just the love between friends. But spousal love, marital love, is a very specific, definitive kind of love. It's the kind of love in which a man and a woman become one flesh. And if you are unable to become one flesh, if you are definitively and perpetually unable to engage in the marital act, you are unable to commit to what marriage is. Marriage is the commitment to give yourself to the other in that way. So, that being said, sterility is not itself an impediment to marriage. Mary has had uh, a hysterectomy, which makes it very clear that she won't be able to to have children. But that is not, and assuming and I just take this for granted, that this hysterectomy was a a medically necessary procedure because there might have been some disease of the uterus and it was not done with the intention of being sterile. Mm -hmm. So there's not a contraceptive intention in Mary's heart. This means her sterility is an unintended consequence of a medically necessary procedure which means in her heart, in her will, there is not a contrary to life attitude, Mm -hmm. which means she could engage in the marital embrace knowing, of course, it's not going to result in a child, but there is no act of her will that is desiring that lack of fertility. So there's no moral fault. So, So Mary, please be assured Uh, There is no impediment to marriage because you've had a hysterectomy. Similarly, a couple past childbearing years, they know they can't have children, uh, but so long as they're still physically capable of engaging in the marital act, there's no impediment to them entering marriage. I remember from our marriage prep teaching days how that kind of shocked younger couples. And I I remember... The impediment... The impotence, impotence impediment. Impotence as yes. an impediment. Yes. And I think, you know, what we were realizing as we were, you know, teaching these younger couples, many of whom did not have a strong faith, many of them were mixed couples, one was Catholic and one was not, that from their cultural kind of education in mm-hmm. sexuality, to them, the connection between giving your body to another person and marriage wasn't even there except for it. Yes, it sh- probably they were intending it to be part of their marriage, but it, right. 
it had no strong connection. There was no intrinsic connection in their right. minds between yeah. sexual intercourse and what you're committing to in marriage. Right. Yeah. right. And so for them, they were just kind of like surprised or shocked or even confused. Like Baffled. Yeah. How could that be? Why would the church say that? You know, because they just didn't get it at all that this is a sacrament. This is a sacramental expression, yeah. you know, that we are ministering this renewal of our vows to one another it's a an occasion of grace in marriage like yeah. that just wasn't in their minds at all so i i get how sometimes i think you know when we're listening and maybe you know many of our listeners don't even really have that firm connection and intrinsic as you use that word yeah. that hearing something about you know having an impediment of impotence that we could even just mentally replace that with, oh, it's because you can't have children. Like, even though that isn't what we're saying, right. because we can't make sense of it, because we don't have that deep in our being understanding that this act between a man and a woman is their marital bond expressed. It's the marital embrace. Right. And when we don't, as you're saying, Wendy, when we don't feel that, intrinsic connection, or put it the other way, when we separate sex yeah. and marriage, we think, oh, yeah, married people have sex, but so do lots of other people. What, what, what does that have to do with it? Right. And, and what the church is saying is that sexual intercourse is the defining element of marital love, not of love, but of marital love, mm. of this specific kind of love. It is the defining element of marital love. Put it this way. If you remove sexual intercourse from the definition of marriage, and if marriage is just a vague companionship of love, well, then I can marry my grandmother. I can marry my sister. I can marry my daughter. I can marry my, I can marry someone of the, my own sex. But when you understand that genital intercourse, that means the intercourse of genitals, which only a man and a woman can engage in is the defining element of marital love, then if that possibility is not there, the possibility of marriage is not there. It can be a challenge. It is a challenge to the way the modern world thinks, but the church is, is very, 2,000 years of reflection on this has brought the church to a very sound understanding of what marriage is and what marriage is not and a very nuanced understanding of it that is lost on the more modern world. And we need to do our best compassionately to meet people where they are, but to bring them step by step to seeing this beautiful understanding of sexual intercourse as the renewal of the marriage commitment itself. And as you said, Wendy, the expression of the marital bond. Mm -hmm. What is the marital bond? that it would be expressed in this way. Press into that. I really invite all the listeners out there. Press into that question. It will open up beauties, treasures, gems, gold that will help you understand yourself and will help you understand the confusion in the modern world and how we got here. And again, sorry for sounding like a broken record, but I, I do unfold all of this in my book, Good News About Sex and Marriage, we'll have a link to that. Uh, I, I never want to be 
sound like a salesman here. If you want that book and you honestly cannot afford it, send me a note in the Q&A section on the podcast and and I'll just get a donor to pay for it and get it to you. I'll give it to you. Uh, I'm, it's not about the money. Uh, I just want people to have this information. Mm-hmm. Shall we go on? Yes. Okay. Uh, a question from a listener named Marianne. Hi, Marianne. Marianne says, greetings from the UK. And she asks, how do I respond to people who think that choosing or being open to having a large family is irresponsible due to the environmental impact that humans have and that this choice is potentially jeopardizing the future sustainability of our planet? Hi, Marianne. Bless you for that question. I've certainly run into this myself. And I think we need to make some distinctions here and recognize that, yes, there are real environmental concerns. There are terrible abuses that human beings have committed that have led to environmental catastrophes. In fact, I was just thinking of this the other day. I didn't share this with you, Wendy. I was I was throwing something away, and I had seen an ad campaign recently that said, uh, there is no away. Hmm. And it's stuck in my brain. Mm-hmm. And it just made me, it was a good ad campaign in, in as much as it really compelled me to look at my behavior and to recognize, you know, we put something in the trash, it goes into our trash can behind the garage, and then a truck comes and picks it up and takes it away. Right. So it's kind of out of our minds. But there is no away. It goes to a dump. Mm-hmm. And I just started thinking of God's perspective on what we've done to his planet with polluted rivers and oceans and the landfills. And, you know, if, if I had this beautiful piece of art and I gave it to somebody and they trashed it, I would be wounded. I would be hurt. And it, it gave me a whole new perspective on the tragedy of what we're doing to the planet. And yes, we do have a responsibility here. So I wanted to say that first. We do have a responsibility here. It is a Christian responsibility to take care of God's good earth. But we can also recognize that that has become its own kind of religion in some quarters. And we don't make proper distinctions where we think that human beings per se are the reason for the environmental catastrophes. And yes, yes, human beings often cause these, but human beings are also responsible and can be responsible for doing good things for the earth. To blame in an unnuanced way environmental catastrophes on human beings and to think bringing more human beings into the world is wrong because it'll create more environmental catastrophes is to fail to understand properly the relationship of human beings and the environment and what we are called to in a proper stewardship of the earth. So I say to Mary Ann, come to understand yourself a proper Catholic stewardship of the earth, a proper Catholic ecology. Uh, I would recommend reading uh, Laudato Si by Pope Francis, which has been dubbed by the... um, media, the environmental encyclical, uh, no, it's really giving us a proper Catholic understanding of creation. It's one of my favorite documents of Pope Francis. Uh, I would urge you to read that. I think you will find the proper, very well thought out 
answer to your question, Marianne, in that document. Mm. The good of a human being is not seen in this That's right. whole framework. That's right. Human being is seen as the potential for harm instead of as the great good that God intends and the the highest of goods, even higher than the good of all other created that's things right. is the good of a human being. So, you know, that's where the environmental, quote, religion has a different set of values. Than, has a different anthropology. Yes. Uh, at the conception of a new life, God proclaims, behold, it is very good. Very good. In that false religion that idolizes the environment and makes it an absolute the response is at the conception of a new life, behold, it is not good. Right. Those are diametrically opposed views mm-hmm. of existence, of life, of what it means to be human. Mm. So glad God made every single one of the very good human beings who are listening to us today. Amen. All those who aren't listening, all those on the whole earth, Lord, we thank you for your unique expression of your creative mystery in every human being who is now or ever has been. It's overwhelming and awesome. Thank you, Lord, for human life and how it comes to be. Thank you that you made us male and female and called us to that intimate union. Behold, it is very, very good. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode. It's our 50th. And if you haven't listened to all 50 of them, <laughs> well, I'll stack them up. Get, get back there to those back episodes. There are lots and lots of good stuff back there. We're so appreciative that you are in this relationship with us listening to our podcast. It's a joy for us to do it. We invite you again to consider becoming a patron of the work of the Theology of the Body Institute. Uh, You can check the show notes for that. And I also want to invite you to consider we are going to the Holy Land in February of 2020, from February 15th to the 25th. The Holy Land. We are going to the place where the Word was made flesh. And I'll be on the trip. Uh, team members from the Theology of the Body Institute will be on the trip. We also have Father Thomas Loya as a chaplain. He's a Byzantine Catholic priest. He's going to be bringing all the insights of and riches of the Eastern Church to bear in our trip. And Father Justin uh, from Boise, Idaho, is going to be with us. He's going to. We have these two chaplains. Both of them are going to be helping us to enter into the riches of the Holy Land, and I'll be bringing catechesis in the theology of the body. If that's of interest to you, click the show notes there, the link to learn more about the pilgrimage. Until next time, as we were just saying, your conception, your existence, your very being is a gift, an unrepeatable gift. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Christopher and Wendy hope the information presented is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted counselors and psychologists in the show notes. But I just knew if I set my mind to it, I can wow, do it. that's great. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> you can edit that out, Mark.